Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 20th, the Masters of Horror series. So today is going to be a bit of a speedy tour, because what we're talking about is the old Masters of Horror television series. Um, it was kind of formulated from an idea... Essentially what happened is that horror director Mick Garris invited a bunch of his other, you know, filmmaking friends like Guillermo del Toro, uh, John Carpenter, John Landis, Joe Dante, and a bunch of others to a restaurant in Sherman Oaks, California one time. And it was just a really kind of informal thing. There wasn't really any sort of, um, you know, it, it was just a bunch of friends hanging out and... The name of this series came from the fact that Guillermo sort of, you know, self-effacingly referred to the group as the Masters of Horror when they were wishing a, um, you know, fellow restaurant patron a happy birthday. So, Garris would later organize, um, you know, more dinners like this later on. Uh, and they had people like Rob Zombie, Tarantino, uh, Ty West, although he wasn't really a filmmaker just yet although I think there was a dinner that happened as late as, like, 2010. And there might have been more after that. But what happened was that they came to, I believe it was either Stars or Showtime, one of those um, one of those channels, and basically pitched an idea. And that became the Masters of Horror television series. It's basically, in total, 26... Well, okay... 24 um, short horror shorts. Um, they're all about like 50 minutes. Uh, the reason I say 24 is because there are technically 26, but um, the last one of season one was not aired for television over concerns of graphic violence. Um, and then the last one overall was Dream Cruise. And that one is that one was aired, but it's not a uh, short film. It's feature length. It's an hour and forty five to the. It's an hour and forty five minutes compared to the fifty five or so for the rest of the, for the rest of the series. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through each of them, just give, um, you know, brief synopsis about each of them. At the end of it, all. I guess I'll just tie this up by the ones I think stood out to me the most. Alright, so first up, uh, I'm going to go through them chronologically. Season 1, we have Incident on and off a mountain road. Uh, it's based on a short story by the author Joe Lansdale. It's directed by Don Coscarelli of the you know Phantasm series fame. And it does have Angus Scrim in a small role here, who played you know the tall man in Phantasm. We have this young woman traveling alone through the countryside, and she ends up crashing into an abandoned car on an isolated stretch of road. She then ends up, she then gets sucked into this cat and mouse game with this deformed serial killer known as Moonface. And the reason we, and it illustrates how she's able to hold her own against the serial killer. She has some kind of survivalism training. And the reason we get this is because we get flashbacks to what started out well, but a what quickly became a very unhappy marriage to, you know, one of those survivalist types. The gun nut wants to live in the live out in the little cabin in the woods, which you know, the cabin in the woods part I'm not judging. It's just, you know, the constant guns and being paranoid that everything's that there's going to be a nuclear war at any minute. It's really strong. It really manages to be tense without being boring, and it manages to cram in a lot of good character stuff for the runtime. Next up, we have H.P. Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House, uh, directed by Stuart Gordon and written by his collaborator, Dennis Paoli. Uh, much like a lot of H.P. Lovecraft's work, it is this strange mix of magic and scientific concepts to create the sense of weirdness that it really does help to um, have you be unsettled because nothing 
nothing really makes sense, but it feels like it's intentional in that way. And I mean, granted, part of that's just the fact that Lovecraft was not particularly, didn't really have any formal schooling. So he never really delved into any subject too much. But the overall plot here, and it's updated for the modern day, is that there's this physics student who's plagued by visions that are forcing him to investigate some sort of supernatural presence. And he doesn't really understand what this presence wants, except it has to it has to do with something regarding his neighbor's his neighbor's baby. Next up, we have Dance of the Dead from Toby Hooper, obviously Texas Chainsaw. And there's this girl in this post-apocalyptic village who befriends a group of drug-crazed bikers from a nearby town. It's It takes place in this, like I said, post-apocalypse, where it's after this, some kind of, like, terrorist attack. And it's this sort of, like, bioweapon that just causes people to suffer horrific burns if they get exposed to it for too long. It's really, it's a really gritty and nihilistic depiction of the setting. And the main, the title comes from a practice that's put on by this like punk rock or heavy metal bar in town. The MC is by, um, the MC is just Robert Englund just hamming it up wonderfully. And there's a wonderful score by uh, Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins. Next up, we have Jennifer from Dario Argento. A police officer shoots and kills this raging crazy man as he was about to kill a horribly disfigured woman with a meat cleaver. Since she doesn't have anyone to really turn to and can't really communicate with anyone... He takes her in sort of out of pity. And her strange behavior and vague sort of supernatural powers begin to completely upend his you know, life and career. His wife and son don't really feel safe around her. A lot of his colleagues seem to think he's acting strange. Um, I'm going to warn you, if you have an issue with gore, this one in particular is probably going to be... should probably be skipped. But it definitely has the Argento feel where it's... Basically, sort of like a troubled lead character who's trying to figure out what's going on, even though he got into this completely by accident. Well, mostly by accident. He is a cop, so he did sort of have to get involved. But it has the overall feel of a lot of Argento's work, so it definitely feels like a nice return to form, especially for a director who kind of started struggling with his feature-length films after a certain point. Next up, we have Chocolate, directed by Mick Garris. A young man going through a divorce begins to experience these sort of psychic visions through the eyes of a random woman. With the name of the episode coming from the first impression he experiences, he just gets an inexplicable taste of chocolate in his mouth. There's not really much to really say about this one, but... It definitely manages to be creepy, especially when there's this sort of like murder mystery like subplot worked in about halfway through. Next up, spoilers, this is kind of my favorite one of the bunch. We have Homecoming, directed by Joe Dante of Gremlins fame. Um, and this is definitely right up his alley. It's a horror comedy in a way. Directed by Joe Dante, we have a little political satire based on a short story called Death and Suffrage, where the American war dead in Iraq make their way home and end up swaying the presidential election. I mean, kind of a bold choice, honestly, given the fact that this was 2005, and even if it hadn't gone as planned, support for the war in Iraq was still pretty high. We have Jane and David as our two main characters. Um, David is essentially just a, like, freelance political consultant. Um, There's a great reveal of his personal stake, because early in the film he references, um, you know, his older brother who died in Vietnam. And we have, like, Jane, 
She's basically just like a complete caricature <laughs> of like a conservative media pundit. She just gasses on a great length about her opinions, and when they're convenient, she changes them. There's a because like there's a scene where you know she's all for letting the you know the un, these undead veterans have their stake, and then they. And so, and then they make it clear that a lot of them are voting against the war, and suddenly she's against letting them vote. They're a public health hazard now. It's it's definitely a, well, I wouldn't say timely, but, you know, it, you could easily update this for the modern day, so it's still, it's kind of timeless in a way. But it does really go to show just how, like, it goes to show how changeable people's opinions on the military are when they don't when they go in the opposite direction of what they should say I mean especially given the fact that you know this was 2005 and well regardless of your opinions on John Kerry I don't particularly like the fact that a lot of people basically mocked him for him for being anti-war they questioned his military record in Vietnam for example and there was a little thing where they gave out little kids' bandages with a Purple Heart logo on them. Like, regardless of your political alignment, I just think that's kind of an asshole thing to do. But I'll, I'll get off that. <laughs> I'll keep moving. Uh, next up, we have Dear Woman. Uh, from John Landis. And it has a bunch of Easter eggs to his other films. Um, the only one I can remember off the top of my head was that there's a reference to an animal attack in London, so American Werewolf in London, and I think there was one to the Blues Brothers as well. But D- Detective Dwight Faraday is a burned-out detective in a little town, and he gets assigned to animal attacks. But he gets drawn into a murder investigation because there's just these, like, grisly attacks. People are, like, like beaten to death, and they're just, just kind of, like, torn apart in a lot of way. And for some reason... The impressions are deer hooves. And he begins to suspect this connection to a local Native American legend. I don't know where this is supposed to be, but then again, you know, at least in film, a lot of directors don't really make the effort to, like, distinguish different types of Native American, let's be honest. And all the witness accounts have a common feature the fact that they all reported seeing this beautiful but mute Native American woman nearby. It's kind of hammy, and it's a little oddly paced for such a short movie, but it is definitely worth a watch, and has some really funny moments in it. Alright, next up we have our first entry from John Carpenter on this list. We have Cigarette Burns. A man who works as a, I guess you'd call him like a investigator in one sense, but it's mostly trying to recover lost film prints or rare film prints. And he's played by Norman Reedus. And there's this like reclusive, odd millionaire played by Udo Kier, who hires him to find a print of a French film called The Absolute End of the World. And the story that goes with this film print is that when it played at a festival a long time ago, only one audience saw it, and the people who saw it were driven into a sort of homicidal frenzy and just started attacking each other. So the film was sort of got this sort of reputation and was banned in a lot of places, and the film prints all just went missing. So Rita's character is trying to find it. Part of it is also he owes money to... Well, I guess his would have been father-in-law. We find out that he had a girlfriend and she like either killed herself or died of an overdose. I don't really remember or if they made it clear. And the two of them are on rocky terms because he owes money for the little theater that he's running. So you know, it's a good mix of like personal stake and sort of like Apocalypse Trilogy-esque um, existential horror because the whole thing is him... There's just these weird events that are like threatening to drive him crazy the closer he gets to the f- 
print. It's like the print itself doesn't want to be found in a way. All right, next up we have Fair-Haired Child. There's a girl in Connecticut, and she's kidnapped on her way home from school, and she's forcibly adopted by this deranged couple in Vermont. She's imprisoned along with their son, who is this sort of, like... He's a pretty nice kid, but he's mute, and he's kind of socially awkward. And upon trying to escape their confinement, the two encounter a bunch of strange writing and graffiti on the walls, including warnings about some entity called the Fair-Haired Child. I'd say a little more, but honestly, if I said any more, it would probably spoil it. So, just go watch it, honestly. It's directed by William Malone, who I had not actually heard um, much about, but he did a couple of 80s sci-fi horrors like Scared to Death and Creature. He did the 1999 remake of House on Haunted Hill. And he did an episode each of Freddy Ni- Freddy's Nightmares and Tales from the Crypt. So it's an eerie little one, and the twist at the ending is just really, really fun and oddly kind of heartwarming in a way. Next up, we have a horror comedy called Sick Girl. There's, it's directed by Lucky McKee, director of the upcoming movie Old Man. Um... He also directed May, The Woods, The Woman, and he did both the original 2001 and the 2013 remake of All All Cheerleaders Die. And our main character here is Ida, who's this shy entomologist, um, insect scientist for those that don't know, who recently got dumped by her girlfriend because, well, she was creeped out by all her pet bugs. She gets involved with this woman named Misty, who kind of just hangs around her workplace a lot of the time. And while their whole relationship is going on, she also becomes obsessed with this really aggressive, really big sort of mantis-like insect that she just can't seem to identify. So the two plots are basically trying to figure out what the deal with this bug is and the whole romance with Misty. And the fact that these two are both horribly socially awkward actually kind of makes the whole romance subplot with them kind of sweet, honestly. It's just watching two people that don't know what the fuck they're doing try <laughs> try and find love, in a way. And then there's just the whole uh, creepy, sinister aspect going on with the bug. Alright, next up, from Larry Cohen, who we've talked about before on this channel. Um, we have Pick Me Up. It's a tense little game of cat and mouse between, and I've heard jokes about this before, not this movie specifically, but just this concept, is that there's a hitchhiking serial killer and a serial killer that kills hitchhikers, and the two of them sort of intersect when the one that kills hitchhikers, when he picks up some people from a bus that broke down. And he ends up at this, like, motel, and the one that kills, and the hitchhiking killer, like, he, like, they both end up at the motel, and they end up getting into this confrontation about who gets to kill this next victim. And it it's kind of interesting, because I don't know if anyone listening has seen that movie, The Hitcher, either the remake or the original with Rucker Hauer. But it's definitely an interesting concept that you've got him and you've got, like, a killer that kills people like him. And they end up just basically arguing over who gets, you know, the next kill. Um, The kill scenes aren't, like, over the top, but they're enough that it doesn't just look like... I don't know, it doesn't just look like stage fighting, basically. And the fact that both these guys are kind of... They're really good performances for both of the killers, especially. Everyone else is okay, but, like, these two... Like, the one that's, like, driving the truck and picking up the hitchhikers to kill them, he just has that sort of, like, charming, old, like, nice southern man. And then... 
then you've got the one that's the hitchhiking killer. And he's sort of that, like, I wouldn't say like James Dean, but he's definitely got that sort of suave drifter kind of look. Like, he wouldn't be out of place in, like, a Western film. Just the way he talks and, like, carries himself. All right, next up we have Haeckel's Tale. Uh, there's a framing sequence for this. It's basically a character from the main story telling the telling someone else the facts afterwards. Uh, it's directed by John McNaughton, who, you know, did a couple of, like, you know, he famously did the infamous Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer with Michael Rooker, which is like one of three big movies that are the reason we have the NC-17 rating. But he also did this really good, like, thriller movie called uh, Wild Things with, you know, Matt Dillon, Kevin Bacon, Eve Campbell, and Denise Richards. And essentially how this works is that there's a young medical student. He has a fascination of the science of life and death, basically. <clears throat> and it's, inter- it's interesting because in this uh, particular story, the the Frankenstein story is referenced, but in that one it's referenced as an actual thing that happened, not just a story. And he is basically trying to be that guy to find a way to reanimate the dead. And, you know, his attempts keep getting frustrated, um, no matter how fresh the corpse is, basically. And the main plot line is that he stops by this magician who claims to be a necromancer. In our real world, that was basically just trying to commune with the dead in, you know, all subsequent works of, like, fantasy and fiction. There's also been the, you know, connotation that you can also raise and command the dead as well. And he stops by this magician in the city before venturing into upstate New York to visit his sick father. And on the way, his, I think his carriage gets wrecked, or he gets lost, something like that. And on the way, he stops by a cabin, sort of held there by this bizarre, eccentric old couple that has some connection to the magician, I'm not going to say what. It's kind of an oddball one, and it's definitely on the weird, it's definitely high up on the weirdness level. Just not in, like, you know, uh, Stuart Gordon, for example. Um, But it's an interesting little tale about, you know, the dangers of, you know, curiosity that's not tempered by a sense of caution. And now, finally, for season one, we get to that episode. Yep, this is Imprint by Takashi Miike a Japanese director who has done a shit ton of movies and TV episodes, but as for horror, is probably most known for the movie Audition. Imprint was the final episode of season one. It was shelved over concerns of the level of graphic violence. Um, and I th- and as you would know if you read the episode description, Mick Garris, this is the one that Mick Garris said was the most disturbing movie he had ever seen. And I can see why, because there's some body horror near the end. There's a torture scene, which is not over the top and bloody, but it's definitely the implication, like, especially the whole, like, the needles under someone's fingernails, for example, or, like, hanging someone from the roof, from the ceiling, in these, like, really uncomfortable positions. Like, by one leg, for example. Like, with the rope tied around your ankles, for example, or just one at a time. And it's meant to sort of emulate the old Kaidan stories, which are just sort of scary folklore, basically. And we follow this American tourist in Japan in the 19th century. He's attempting to go back and find this prostitute that he met years ago. And the two of them, I guess, really connected and... You know, he promised that at some point he would take her back to the U.S. with him. 
so you know she wouldn't have to work in a brothel anymore. It's an interesting little framing device because he ends up having to stay the night at this island, and he asks about he asks about this prostitute that he's looking for, and the one that he ends up having to sort of stay with for the night. Kind of in like a Rashomon style, she gives him like three different stories about what happened, and the truth eventually does get revealed at the end, which is, you know, a little different from Rashomon. But if you got the stomach for a kind of, it's still heavy stuff for me, and I, slasher movie, you know, crappy slasher movies are like my bread and wine, basically. Or meat and wine? I don't know, whatever. Mixing my metaphors again. But, you know, even for me, this was still kind of heavy stuff to watch. So, watch it at your own discretion if you find the Masters of Horror on Tubi, for example. Uh, like I said, you can find them for in them for free on Tubi. They're free with ads. And I think you can buy each season for about... You can rent each season for, I think, $7 on Vudu. Alright, so moving on to season two, we have The Damned Thing. It's named for a. It's named after the short story by Ambrose Bierce. There's a small town in Texas, and it's menaced by this sort of vague supernatural force that has a particular focus on one family, in this case, the sheriff's family. We get this opening sequence where we see him as a young boy fleeing from his father who just got up and killed his wife one day, mumbling something about something that's coming for them. So we get the hint that this wasn't him doing it out of, like, hatred or anything. It was doing it sort of out of, like, a misguided sense of mercy or fear. Uh, This is another Toby Hooper one, and it really does... It's sort of like, I don't know, it's not so much a body snatcher movie, it's more in line with, like, Romero's The Crazies, I think. But with the added, um, but with the added complication that it's more just this vague force that's making everyone kind of testy and violent, not some kind of, like, bioweapon. So if you... So if you like horror that is a little more cerebral, I would suggest this one. Next up, we have another John Landis one. We have Family. We follow this young couple that has just moved into this picturesque small town across the street from this seemingly ideal neighbor named Harold. And we find out pretty early on, because there's this scene where Harold's talking to his wife and daughter, and they're just not moving, and we don't see their faces, and then it cuts to it, and they're skeletons. In they're skeletons with, like, wigs and dresses on. Yep, Harold is, in fact, a serial killer who makes a sort of, quote-unquote, family out of his victim's skeletons. And it's sort of a... I like to say, it's kind of like a comical representation of the whole idea of it-could-be-anyone kind of thing, you know? The thing that always gets brought up with a lot of serial killers is the fact that a lot of stuff may seem like weirdness with them, but a lot of it wasn't apparent until after the fact, you know. You got guys like BTK who were, you know, perfectly normal family men on the outside, like he was on the, like, director's board of his local church or whatever. It was like, had a wife and kid and all that. So it really does highlight that whole idea of it could just be anyone and you wouldn't really know because most of them can pass themselves off as normal pretty easily. So there's that. Harold does a really... The actor, George Wendt, he... You might know him best as Norm from Cheers and from the spinoffs. He does a really good job of presenting Harold as that kind of like deeply disturbed guy who can still pass himself off as the, you know, jovial, friendly neighbor who just likes to keep to himself and garden, but is more than happy to spend time with the neighbors. You know, it. 
his especially stood out because you know everyone else is fine, um, but he really does play that sort of like coin flip personality very very well. And there is a really great twist with a couple at the end. Next up, we have the V Word, directed by Ernest Dickerson, uh, most known for his collaborations with Spike Lee, but also did a couple of like crime dramas on his own. And featuring uh, Michael Ironside from you know Starship Troopers and Scanners, we follow this pair of teen outcasts who decide to break into a morgue, basically for shits and giggles, I guess. And yeah, from the title, guess what they run into. (sighs) But yeah, it's definitely one of those movies where you get the sense that, like, they're both, they both love playing video games. Uh, One of them's going through the whole, like, his parents are getting a divorce thing. He's not on good terms with his dad. And he's just kind of, like, alienated from the rest of his family as a result of it. So, it's kind of flimsy story-wise, honestly, but you get the sense that they're doing this mostly just for the thrills, because they're both kind of just out of it and disconnected from everyone else. Alright, next up we have Sounds Like, from director Brad Anderson. I don't know if anyone listening has seen the movie Session 9, but it's it's really, really good. Um, but Sounds Like is, there's this sort of, like, tech support supervisor who kind of just throws himself into his work to try and you know forget about the pain of losing his son after losing his son he begins to develop this superhuman level of hearing and even though it works to his advantage a lot of the time um, actually helps him I wouldn't say it helps him like give feedback to his subordinates because he's actually kind of an asshole to them a lot of the time but it gets so to the point where he can't like attune it and it begins to drive him crazy all right next up we have pro-life another by john carpenter uh featuring ron perlman as the head of this sort of like religious fundamentalist family and there's these two employees who are driving to this um, you know, women's health clinic out in the woods. And they run into this pregnant woman running through the woods. And she has to be taken to the clinic. And what her family, who is trying to prevent her from, you know, terminating her pregnancy, doesn't realize is that the fetus is not human. It's it's actually demonic in nature, and the demon is actually... It's it's interesting because her father actually, like, prays for guidance, and we find out that it's pretty heavily hinted at this point that the, it's not God he's hearing, it's this demon, and it's the demon's kid that's inside of her. So he's trying to manipulate this, you know, fundamentalist, like, Christian family into helping this, like, demon child be born. So, it's an interesting little twist. It's definitely got that sort of cynical satire that really stands out in a lot of John Carpenter's uh, movies. And Ron Perlman, as this, like, scummy, overbearing fundamentalist, just gives a wonderful performance here. Uh, Next up we have Pelts. Another Dario Argento one. We have a cameo from John Saxon in this one. And the collective spirits of a bunch of dead raccoons takes revenge against any who are a coat made out of their pelts. I I really don't have anything more to say on that one. It's kind of a silly... It's definitely a good one. But this is one where it's kind of hard to talk about because the premise, when you break it down and simplify it, just kind of sounds kind of stupid. Uh, but yeah, it, it's an Argento one, and he definitely has, like, his, you know, style in this one. Alright, next up we have The Screw Fly Solution, based on an epistolary short story, um, from 
James Tiptree Jr. Who was actually just the pen name for a woman named Alice Sheldon. And, okay, when I say epistolary short story, for those that don't know, when I say that, what I mean is that the written text is sort of laid out sort of as um, letters, diary entries, newspaper clippings, stuff like that. Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula was that originally. And we follow this mother and daughter as they flee across the country. And the incitement is the spreading of this sort of plague that makes men hum homicidally aggressive when sexually aroused and there's this rash of killings that just is sort of hand waved away it's like the killers always give some sort of like religious extremism answer um, as to their motivations for the killings and the way they find out it's linked to sexual arousal is they get a bunch of guys put them in a room and monitor their brain activity. And there's actually a fun little Easter egg where they actually show a scene from imprint <laughs> on one of the TVs. And they find out the only cure once infected is, well, castration of either the chemical or, I guess, analog variety, if you will. And it's unusual for something that Joe Dante made because it's presented as straight horror. It's still fairly entertaining, but it's not. It doesn't have quite the same sense of humor that a lot of his other stuff does. Um, there's an amazing, kind of like haunting twist at the ending, and if if you watch it, I will say pay attention to what they say about this particular type of fly during a discussion near the beginning, because it does end up having some relevance to that. Next up, we have Valerie on the Stairs, another by Mick Garris, this time based off a story by Clive Barker. Reeling from this recent breakup, a struggling artist moves into the sort of... It's a sort of, like, commune building for unpublished authors. And eventually, after he moves in, he experiences these weird sort of supernatural events focused around this woman named Valerie, just sort of lurking around the building followed by some sort of demon figure. Uh, we get a cameo from Christopher Lloyd, and it's definitely an interesting little story that's mostly based around... It's one of those concepts where there's a supernatural being in the um, imagination of a like living person has something to do with how it's shaped. I'm going to be honest, though, this one... Both of McGarris's entries aren't really that entertaining, to be honest. I like a lot of his other stuff, but these two, his two entries are just kind of relatively dull compared to a lot of the others. But it does have that sort of like urban paranoia, basically. Everything's confined into this one building. So it has a very sort of paranoid, claustrophobic feeling a lot of the time. Alright, next up we have Right to Die, directed by Rob Schmidt, who also did Crime and Punishment in Suburbia. There's this car accident that leaves a woman in a coma, severely burned, and a man is convinced to take and her husband is convinced to take her off life support, as the alternative would be life in a fairly vegetative state, even if she survived the surgery. However, he and many others who took advantage of her in life are soon haunted by her vengeful... I wouldn't say ghost, but let's just use ghost. Haunted by a vengeful ghost who's trying to get them to actually go through with the surgery. And we get some hints pretty early on that like he was unfaithful to her, that he might have only... It's not so much he loved her, he loved her money kind of thing. So this is her, basically kind of her way of saying, if I'm going to die, then I'm going to make sure the rest of your life is hell while I'm here. And it's a fairly interesting, creepy one, and it's more about this guy trying to keep his life together as it's spiraling out of control. Like, 
His mother-in-law thinks that he's just trying to, like, get her out of the way so he can get the money. He's got this friend who's kind of like a stereotypical scumbag lawyer. So it it's an interesting little examination of, like, how something seemingly innocent just kind of, like, spins out of control and becomes something a lot more sinister. All right, next up from the Fright Night Child's Play director and Child's Play director Tom Holland, we have We All Scream for Ice Cream. The way this goes is that there is this... There's this guy, he and his family move back to his hometown, and one of his old friends from this little circle of friends that he ran with recently died which you know kind of put the kibosh on the idea of a reunion that they were hoping for and what happens is that there was this prank that they pulled against this sort of I I don't know if they made it clear if he was like actually mentally handicapped or if he was just if they just called him that as an insult he had like kind of a stutter and I think they mentioned he had difficulty like counting but there was this guy who dressed up like a clown. He was an ice cream man. He was really well loved. But they pulled a prank on him, and the prank ended up killing him. So now that they're all back in town, I think the implication is that his ghost is like coming for revenge against them. And they're doing it. He's doing it in an interesting way because he needs the kids, their kids, for something related to this. Um, I, I know what it is. It's just that explaining it would spoil a lot. Um, but yeah, it is basically just classic, um, like vengeful ghost story. The now grown ups are being haunt. Something that they did when they were kids is coming back to haunt them. So it's, it's definitely a really creepy one, although admittedly part of that is just child endangerment, so points off for cheapness, I guess. But, you know, who doesn't love, like, creepy clowns? <laughs> it's always a, it's been a horror classic, even, like, before Stephen King, I think. All right, next up on the more, like, drama end of things, we have The Black Cat. This is the second entry from Stuart Gordon, uh, starring Jeffrey Combs as Edgar Allan Poe, of course. It's a mix of both the short story and Poe's real life. Uh, short on cash, suffering from writer's block, he stays with his wife in her house, and he's tormented by the eponymous black cat. It's like hissing at him constantly. It's constantly getting in the way of his uh, writing. It complicates um, It complicates his attempt to look after his wife because at some point she gets tuberculosis and starts coughing up blood and is basically bedridden. And it's especially creepy. It's got a couple of funny moments, but it's especially creepy the whole way through because aside from like blood, wine and the fire in various forms, the movie has this eerie atmosphere because of how desaturated and washed out it looks. If it weren't for the blood and wine, you'd almost think that this was like shot in black and white. It's not quite, like, Sin City level, but, you know, the whole, like, bar scene is so washed out to the point where it looks like everything's gray, and then Poe pours himself some brandy, and it's, like, bright red. So it's really interesting cinematography-wise. And like I said, it's a mix of, like, Poe's action. It's one of those things where it's, like, actual events are used as a framing device for the inspiration for the story. So, and there's a couple of like, funny, there's a funny moment where Poe's just like contemplating like choking out this like newspaper guy who's like talking down to him. So, this is definitely like up there in terms of the entries into the show. All right, next up we have The Washingtonians, directed by Peter Madak, the director of the director of The Changeling. George C. Scott. This one is based off a story by Bentley Little. There's a man who moves into his grandmother's old house, cleans out her possessions after the funeral, and he clashes with this 
secrets local secret society who seeks to like safeguard all these like terrible truths about like the American founding fathers like the whole the whole incident the whole incident that started this is that his daughter is playing around accidentally knocks over this painting and he finds this letter signed with the initials GW where he's describing how good like human flesh tastes <laughs> and how he's how how he makes bones out of the I makes bones into utensils stuff like that and he finds this fork that very does look very much very much does look like it's made out of human bone and yeah basically the whole idea is that the whole ball gets rolling because there's this insinuation that Washington is a, that George Washington was actually a cannibal. <laughs> I mean, why not? I mean, the guy, because I mean, why not? <laughs> I mean, you know, people lionize the man despite the fact that he destroyed so many Iroquois towns that he got destroyer of towns as an epithet, and we don't even know which one incited this because he did it so often. But I guess a cannibal would be too much for the American psyche. But, I mean, it's kind of silly at points because when they're coming after them, they're, like, dressed up in, like, Revolutionary War era attire. But it's it's definitely got that sort of, like, classic, you know, wrong, wrong place at the wrong time kind of feel like a Hitchcock movie where someone's in danger because they stumbled onto something that they shouldn't know and they're trying to figure out what to do, but they don't even know where to start because they don't know who they can trust. So this is definitely... This one's up there for me, especially. Next, finally, we have the only one of these that's actually a feature-length movie. We have Dream Cruise, uh, directed by Norio Ceruta, who directed this um, J-horror movie called Premonition. He directed one of the Ringu sequels, it's based off a short story by Koji Suzuki, who also did the short stories that inspired uh, Ring, the movie Darkwater. We open with this background where there's this incident. Um, there's an American lawyer named Jack. He's working in Tokyo. And he... It opens with the reason why he's so afraid of the ocean. Um... He was out rowing with his little brother, Sean, one time, and the boat flipped. He survived, Sean didn't, and it's a mix of trauma and survivor's guilt, basically, because he feels like he didn't do enough to save Sean somehow. And it left him with a deep-rooted fear of the sea. And part of that, that also feeds into this conflict, because he's supposed to go out talk to his client, A.G. Uh, A.G. insists that Jack join them on this little leisure cruise uh, sailing in Tokyo Bay while they you know, discuss A.G.'s legal troubles. And that also feeds into this sort of love triangle between A.G., Jack, and A.G.'s wife, Yuri, because the two have had an affair before. And then, as they get further out to sea, weird things start to happen. And it's kind of hinted that it had something to do with A.G.'s wife prior to Yuri and her uh, disappearance, let's just put it that way. So yeah, again... This is one where it's mostly based on mood and atmosphere. There's a sort of claustrophobia because like, they're in the middle of Tokyo Bay for a little bit and they actually go a little further out to sea. So it's a pretty um, it's a pretty long swim if the boat goes down and Jack is kind of afraid of the, of the sea anyway. So there's not really any place to run from their troubles. So yeah, if you like one that's a bit slower and based more on like atmosphere, some su- supernatural aspects, I would especially recommend Dream Cruise. 
And that's it. That's all 26 of them. Uh, like I said, you can find them. You can buy it and rent it on Vudu, or you can watch it on Tubi for free. Just bear in mind, you will have to sit through ads with that. Uh, I honestly liked pretty much every one of them, although I will say the following ones kind of stuck out to me especially was Incident on and Off a Mountain Road, Dreams in the Witch House, um, Homecoming was definitely like my favorite of the bunch. Cigarette Burns, Pick Me Up, uh, Family, uh, Pro-Life and Screw... Screwfly Solution. All of those definitely stood out to me, although Black Hat and Washingtonians were also pretty good. So, yeah, that was the Masters of Horror series. Um, kind of sad they didn't keep going with it, although apparently, like, the... what was supposed to be Season 3 just ended up becoming a new show on... Um, I think Stars or Showtime again. Either way. Uh, it was called Fear Itself. But I'm going to wrap this up now because, God, this we're already pushing past 50 minutes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, I'll be back tomorrow to talk about the about four movies from director David Cronenberg, especially because this movie Crimes of the Future came out this year. It was really, really good. Uh, and after that, we're going to be looking into the Hellraiser franchise, and then on the 23rd, we'll be talking Scream. So thanks for joining me today. I hope you have a good night. Stay safe. Bye.